Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 327, The Fall of Bataan. Last time, the breakthrough of the Allied line, the separating of General Jones' First Corps with General King's Second Corps, had been achieved. General Homa's plan was working. Now, it was time to drive south and end this Battle of the Philippines, once and for all. Attempting to counter this, General Wainwright threw in what extra men he had, and, as we have seen, what extra food he had. Neither was very much or enough. All this was reported by Wainwright to General MacArthur and General Marshall back in Washington. Sadly, the overall situation was even worse than Wainwright knew. Oh, his men tried. They tried to form lines. They tried to hold the enemy back. They tried to match the energy of the enemy, but could not. Lines formed and then fell apart after being hit directly or outflanked. The Allied artillery that had the Japanese shaking in their boots back in January were in want of shells. And of course, trying to keep up with the attackers and their movements was impossible due to the lack of strength. As such, soon some of the defenders were either on the various trails or roads heading away from the enemy which meant south, but there was only so far they could go, or they melted into the jungle, which had its own dangers, but right now they paled in comparison. Still, the majority of the defenders stood their ground. There was still fight in them yet. Though April 6th had gone all the invaders' way, General King was eager to try again the next day. Thus, on April 7th, several units were cobbled together to try a pincer attack on the enemy where trails 6 and 8 met, about two miles west of Mount Samat. If the enemy could be crushed there, then the Allies would hopefully have time to extend this new defensive line along the Pentagon River that ran south to north and along the San Vicente River that ran to the northeast, where some Allied units were already being stationed. Far from perfect, yes, but if this bent line could be reattached to General Jones' first corps line to the west, then perhaps the enemy could be held back for a while longer. Again, this was to be a pincer attack, hence Colonel Lilly, coming from the east, would head west with two battalions of the 57th Infantry and two battalions Philippine Army of the Reserve Corps. Meanwhile, the 45th Infantry and Company C, 194th Tank Battalion, would head east to meet Colonel Lilly. The tanks were from General Albert Jones' 1st Corps Command, and though his line was kept busy with the diversionary attack, the command realized they had to pool their resources to have any chance of survival. And yet, given the disorder of the defender's entire position, but mostly along the 2nd Corps' line, as well as their logistics, as this had to work, the commanders were being cautious, overly cautious. The force heading east, the 45th Infantry, would lead with only one of its battalions and two of its tanks from C Company. The rest would stay with General Lowe's headquarters. If all worked out well enough with the attack, then the rest of the 45th Infantry would be released. 
As General Nara and his 65th Brigade had been the stars for the last few days, it will come as no surprise that Nara anticipated some attack in this area. Further, he guessed that the attackers were more concerned about retreating when things went wrong versus making them go right, and he was not wrong. Thus, Nara selected the perfect place within the trail junction of 6 and 8 area to set up his ambush. Further, the defenders had no other option but to walk along the trail as they were hemmed in by a steep hill to the south and a ravine to the north. And, as the ambush was set up at a location just before the Allies expected to meet resistance, that combined with the sharp turn in the trail, those Filipino troops would be walking into a trap, and yet unable to see it due to the sharp turn and the terrain on either side. Thus, at 1 a.m. on April 7th, the 2nd Battalion moved out, arranged in columns of companies. In the lead were the two tanks and a platoon of Company F. The battalion and regimental headquarters personnel were bringing up the rear, with Colonel Doyle in their midst. After an hour and a half of walking, the lead elements were approaching the bend of the trail, and thus the ambush. Many of the men walking had their eyes down, expecting those ahead of them to look out for trouble. And they were not wrong in this, but considering the fighting of the last few days, having more eyes up and alert would have been preferable. Of course, then there's the hunger and fatigue factors to consider. As the leading soldiers made the turn in the bend, the scouts of this column recognized the potential trap and started yelling out. Then the closest Japanese troops raised their guns. Spawning some of these, the scouts yelled out louder, but it was too late. The trap had been entered and sprung. Right away the lead tank was taken out, but the second one was only damaged. This allowed it to turn around. The lead jeep, carrying six officers in it, was hit. Instantly the driver and two others were killed. The three other passengers were wounded. Their training and recent experiences being what they were, the men quickly formed a line and started returning fire. This allowed those in the jeep, still alive, to back paddle, as did the lone tank. But clearly, the location of this battle had been chosen by the Japanese, hence it was unwise to stay and fight. Who knew what else they had planned? With the first shot, Colonel Doyle ran to the front to take over. As expected, it was an ambush. There was confusion on the defender's side. Besides which, it was still dark, so the best Doyle could do for now was to have his men return fire to keep the enemy away and wait for daylight. This worked, and the Japanese were unable to get in close enough to cause real confusion. Also, the increased lighting showed Colonel Doyle there was no chance of smashing through the blocked trail ahead. Ordering an about-face, the men of this half of the pincer movement made their way back to the Pentagon River. At this point, the story should read, and the 2nd Battalion with their lone tank made it back to the 3rd Battalion and the rest of the tanks, and all were safe. But that was not the case. During all this, 3rd Battalion and the majority of the tanks that had been waiting around had been engaged in their own battle, as other Japanese troops had come south to clear this way. The ambushed 2nd Battalion made it clear of the threat 
as did the 3rd Battalion, but it took them until 6 p.m. that day to get away, as the brave Japanese soldiers kept trying to bodily block the Allies' retreat. Thus, even though it had been remote, the chance of linking up Sector D, General Lowe's headquarters, and the rest of General King's 2nd Corps line was now impossible. As it was, these troops close to the Pentagon River were told to cross over to the West Bank and form a defensive line there, until something else could be thought of. General Parker's sector may have been in tatters, but that was no reason to give up on General Jones' western sector. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As for the other half of the pincer attack to be carried out by the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 57th Infantry Regiment, that never got off the ground. These men were met by Colonel Sato's 61st Infantry Regiment, who were trying to locate and attack the southern end of the San Vicente line along that river. As the pincer attack did not come off to the west of Mount Samat, this left the 33rd Infantry Regiment alone in that area, and with this being their status, they were about to meet their end. Of course, the men of the 33rd Infantry had guessed their demise was nigh. Previously, when we left them alone, with no operable radio equipment and enemy units nearby, now it was time for their fate to play itself out. At 6 a.m. on April 7th, the enemy troops near them started an hour-long mortar attack. Only then did the Japanese fix bayonets. Still, as the two sides clashed, the Filipinos, probably from desperation, did well at first. They were clearly up to the task of standing toe-to-toe with the Japanese, but then their lack of food for the last few months began to tell. The Filipinos weakened and fell. Major Holmes, in command, knew they had to make a break for it, but by now their number of wounded was considerable. Doing the best with his situation, Holmes ordered that the medical officers and the wounded stay behind and surrender. Those that could were going to fight their way out. That was the plan, but as the Japanese had been ready for this, few defenders actually made it into the jungle. 
Thus did Nara's 65th Brigade and the 61st Infantry Regiment take the area that was formerly Sector D. But this changing of possession took place at a snail's pace compared to how quickly the 4th Division and the Nagano Detachment attacked and took the newly formed and forming Allied Line along the San Vicente River. Of course, this attack, like all the others, since General Homa had received supplies, namely shells, started out with an hour-long bombardment, joined by bombers overhead, who dropped 100 tons of explosives. Within this tonnage, at least 10 bombs hit General Hospital No. 2. It had been hit the week previous as well. 73 men were now dead, and of the 117 injured, soon 16 of them would be dead. Almost as bad for the surviving patients, their records, kitchen utensils, and medicines were destroyed. Staying with the San Vicente River line for a moment, after the artillery stopped and the bombers flew away, the Nagano detachment went in at 7.30 a.m., they slammed right into the 32nd Infantry Regiment on the right half of Sector C, which was barely hanging on. But after the shelling, those defenders melted away, heading south. This left the Nagano Detachment free to turn to their left or east and hit the Provisional Air Corps Regiment in Sector B. As Nagano's men were led by tanks, and the American airmen had no anti-tank weapons, they too pulled back with little to no organization. As for Sector A, the fight there was not needed, as the Philippine troops there left after receiving their own intense bombardment from artillery and bombers. At this point, General Homa controlled the entirety of General Parker's 2nd Corps line. To be sure, General Blumel tried to calm his men of Sector C, but each time he got a few men to stop, to form a line, when an enemy plane flew over, even without dropping bombs or shooting bullets, the men on the ground broke and ran south. There was no stopping them. What remained of the far-left part of the San Vicente River line fell just as quickly. But the American 31st Infantry fell back in reasonably good order to reform their line further to the southeast, but in front of the Mamala River, which is level with the town of LeMay on the coast. General King himself tried to stem this disorganized flood of men by taking the now horseless 26th Cavalry from 1st Corps back on April 6th, and he ordered them to help reestablish 2nd Corps' line. But when the San Vicente River line broke, King knew this line was hopeless. Thus, he ordered all the men he could to get behind or on the south side of the Mamala River. This was to be their new line. By the afternoon of April 7th, as Second Corps' line crumbled, the Mamala River line had two lines of defenders along it. But that evening came the Japanese artillery shells and bombs. Seeing that it was about to be Sector D all over again, General Blumel ordered the men off the Mamala River line and to fall back to the next river, the Alangan, about 4,000 yards to the south. The men, though shaken, waited until dark and began to move out. Blumel was hoping all stragglers would come his way and help strengthen the Alangan line. 
The men were expected to be in place by the early morning of April 8th. Seeing it was all but over, even the reserves had already been committed, General King told Generals Jones and Parker to take the last of their men who had yet to see any serious fighting, those along the beaches, namely the 1st and 4th Philippine Constabulary Regiments, and put them in the line. Problem was, he was ordering them to the Mamala River line, which was already breaking down. Further, General Wainwright was trying to build on this flawed plan by having General Jones of 1st Corps, on the left-hand side of the peninsula, take a large group of his men and push east, hopefully hitting the enemy in their flanks. But when General Jones was made aware of this plan, his response was, General, my men are too weak to cross the Pentagon River, even if unopposed. And as for their heavy equipment, there is no way they can get that across. Still, he would try. He just needed 18 hours. This got back to General Wainwright, who told General King it was his decision to make, as he was there on the ground. King knew this would not work, so instead ordered General Jones to pull back to the Merivellis Mountains. Having sent off his orders to King, Wainwright reported to Washington all that had happened in the last 24 hours. There was nothing good to report. As for the reports getting back to General Homa, he had expected this latest offensive to last at least a month. But the enemy was melting in front of his men. All they had to do was keep going. Even better, Japanese casualties for these amazing gains had been only 150 dead and 250 wounded, while taking 1,000 prisoners and many piles of weapons. Lastly, the Nagano detachment had not lost a single man. General Homa ended April 7th with an order to push on without delay. Their target now was Kankaban, a town on the southeast corner of Bataan. But making sure his men did not get carried away with the coming victory, Homa ordered them not to bunch up around Kabkambin. Hence, the 4th Division was to drive south, but stay west of that town. The 65th Brigade would take Mount LeMay and the heights of Marivellis to deny them to the enemy. The Nagano Detachment would head down the East Coast Road. The 16th Division would march behind the Nagano Detachment, and prepared themselves to take the entirety of the Marivellis Mountains. Of course, the 14th Army Artillery and the 22nd Air Brigade would soften up the enemy again before the next attack. Next, and this order was a first, the artillery of the Japanese were to open fire on Corregidor itself as soon as it came within range. As the defenders had their internal lines reduced, they were able to bunch their men more together and support them with artillery. It was hoped they would be able to deliver a bloody nose that would give the enemies pause. And yet, as all these orders were flying around, radios were far from perfect, the men did not get into their correct positions. Further, some of them kept walking or running south after crossing the Alagon River. Also, due to miscommunications, there was a gap of 1,000 yards in between the defenders' right and left flanks. When the Japanese artillery started up and their bombers flew over early on April 8th, 
the results were more than could have been hoped for by General Homa. Within minutes, the defenders on the right, weak, exhausted, and only thinking of food, now became firemen as the local grass and bamboo were set ablaze. Seeing this, the Japanese kept sending their bombers in. Scouts noticed that each time their pilots flew over, the Filipinos would break and hide, only to come back and start digging again or putting out the fires. But with each sweep of bombers, fewer defenders were returning to the line. Not a single Japanese infantryman had moved out yet. Besides bombing the Alagon River line, the Japanese fighters were helping out, and then they would swing to the north to strafe enemy troops who were retreating along the various trails. The men below were so bunched up, the fighter pilots could not miss each time they depressed their triggers. The Japanese infantry did not come near the defensive line until 2 p.m. of that April 8th. They quickly found the gap in the center and started harassing both flanks. The Americans to the west or left fell back, followed by the Filipinos on the right. Through all of this, the 26th Cavalry and the 14th Engineer Battalion were having some success, like when they were able to hold up a column of tanks or take out the lead infantryman of the approaching enemy. However, as they had no anti-tank weapons or ammunition, not much could be done to exploit this. As for the Japanese infantrymen, when stymied, they either hunkered down and called in artillery or flanked the confused formations of the defenders. By that afternoon, General Blumel knew holding the Alagon River line was impossible. To be sure, the defenders' 75mm guns and tanks were still fighting to good effect, but with little to no infantry support, they soon became overwhelmed and had to be pulled back. For the defenders, everything from coordination and communications were in shambles. General King did not know until 6 p.m. that the Alagon River line was broken and that the Nagano Detachment and 4th Division were pushing south along the East Coast Road and Trail 20, which also runs south but a few miles inland from shore. Doing the best he could with what he had left, General King ordered the Provisional Coast Artillery Brigade to be the heart of his next line just north of Cap Caben. That is, after they destroyed all of their anti-aircraft weapons they had that could not be carried. By this point, Generals King and Parker were working at cross-purposes, as each tried to form a line in different places. When this was discovered, Parker made it clear that his men were at the end of their tether. King took from this that the Second Corps was shattered beyond hope. Further proof came when the new line to be formed along the Lalamo River, located in between the Alagon River and the town of Cab Caben on the coast, only a few units showed up due to exhaustion and faulty communications. Now, truly desperate, General Wainwright ordered Jones' First Corps, in its entirety, to go on the offensive. Not that he thought this would change anything, but it had been an instruction from MacArthur, should things get this bad. This was MacArthur being MacArthur, 
The next part of the instructions read, Hopefully supplies taken from the enemy would result from this surprise offensive, and if not, the men could then melt into the jungle to become guerrilla fighters. But first, Wainwright sent out his intentions to go on the offensive to MacArthur and Washington, hoping someone would tell him not to proceed, as it surely would not work and only get men killed. No word came. So, he ordered the offensive. Word of this was sent to the Corps commanders, but Jones replied to General King that his men were currently in the middle of retreating and had to set up a new line. Besides, they simply did not have the strength to engage the enemy. King accepted this without argument. The order to attack by King was not issued. Hours went by. When Corregidor heard nothing of the attack, Wainwright had his chief of staff, General Bebe, telephone Jones. The first corps commander confirmed that he had not received the order to attack. General King found out about this call at 3 a.m. and on April 9th called Wainwright himself. Putting it bluntly, King asked Wainwright, Am I still in charge of all the forces on Bataan? King confirmed this. There was no talk of the offensive. However, Wainwright believed that the attack would go forward in whatever shape it was possible. This conversation was the last communique between Wainwright and King. What Wainwright did not know was that his conversation with King was made moot by King's actions earlier that day. Late on April 8th, King, who knew the cause was lost, had actually sent his chief of staff, General Funk, to talk to Wainwright. At this level, even in the military, it's all about politics. So while Funk never said, I'm seeking permission to surrender, that was the main reason for the visit. After all, the right half of the line had been broken, allowing the Japanese pretty much access to the southern tip of Bataan, and that meant access to the 12,000 patients in the various hospitals and the fate of 78,000 men, not even considering the tens of thousands of refugees. But Wainwright's hands were tied by a letter on his desk from MacArthur that prohibited surrender under any conditions. The general had written more than once, if it came to surrender, it was better to, and thus ordered so, to attack the enemy and take out as many of them as possible before the command was obliterated, which is easy enough to say or write from Australia. Thus, Wainwright's conversation with Funk ended with, there will be no surrender and a counterattack was to get underway. Funk walked away with tears in his eyes. If these orders were carried out, tens of thousands of men, their men, were about to die. Years later, Wainwright said that he expected King to surrender. It's just that he could not give him the order to do so. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Exactly when General King decided to disobey Wainwright and surrender is not known. Surely the writing had been on the wall for days. But at 11 p.m. on April 8th, King spoke with his chief of staff and his operations officer. He described the overall situation none of it good, and saying going on the offensive would only get his men killed with nothing to show for it. The exact opposite of leadership. Plus, there was no stopping the Japanese, so what was the point? No, it was time to open negotiations with the enemy. King then called his entire staff together. He told them his decision and that he did not want opinions. The blame was to fall entirely on his shoulders, which is why he did not inform Wainwright of his decision. So Colonel E.C. Williams and Major Marshal H. Hurt Jr., both unmarried and no kids, volunteered to seek out the enemy to arrange for King to have a meeting with General Homa. King explained that it was imperative to discuss the following, the sick and wounded in the hospitals, that they were now within artillery range, to tell the enemy that it would take time to get word to all of his scattered forces that his men were weak from hunger. This should be considered if Homa wanted them to walk a great distance, and lastly, the civilians with him and his had no part in this fight, that they should be left alone. At 3.30 a.m. on April 9th, Williams and Hurt were on the road, seeking out the enemy. However, the Japanese probably had an idea of what was to come, as huge explosions were taking place behind the Allied lines. Clearly, they were destroying their stores and larger weapons. During this, about 2,000 people, the nurses and some troops, American naval, and some of the men of the 26th Cavalry, escaped to Corregidor by barges. At 5.30 a.m., Williams and Hurt made contact with enemy troops near the battle line, close to the East Road. Right away, about 30 Hohe troops rushed at the two Americans, bayonets at the ready. Fortunately, an officer screamed at them to stop. The officer told the two Americans to get back in their jeep and follow him. Soon, they met General Nagano, who agreed to talk to King near Lamao. Hurt was sent back to get King while Williams stayed behind. Hurt reached King at 9 a.m., who was all set to travel. Remember, back at 3 a.m., King spoke to Wainwright, and there was no talk of surrendering. In fact, it was the opposite. Still, by now, at 6 a.m., Wainwright found out what King was up to. 
His reaction was to yell at a staff officer, go back and tell him not to do it. But by then, Williams and Hurt were already on their way to Nagano, and King could not be reached by radio or telephone. Hence, Wainwright wrote to MacArthur, At six o'clock this morning, General King, without my knowledge or approval, sent a flag of truce to the Japanese commander. The minute I heard of this, I disapproved of his action and directed that there should be no surrender. I was informed it was too late to make any changes, that the action had already been taken. Physical exhaustion and sickness due to a long period of insufficient food is the real cause of this terrible disaster. When I get word what terms have been arranged, I will advise you. Later, Wainwright never criticized King. At 9 a.m. on April 9th, King, in his last clean uniform, left to meet General Nagano. Because of the attacking planes overhead, by the time King reached General Nagano, he was as disheveled as a private on the front line. This was indicative of the entire campaign. As the planes kept attacking, it took two hours for King's jeep to travel only three miles. King reached Nagano at 11 a.m., who informed him that he was unable to negotiate on his own authority. Soon, a representative of General Homa arrived. This man, Colonel Nakayama, was less friendly than Nagano and only wanted to discuss complete surrender of all Allied forces. King retorted that he could only offer the surrender of the forces on Bataan. This did not please Nakayama, who kept repeating, all forces must surrender voluntarily and unconditionally. King assumed, after an hour, that this meant his men would be treated fairly under the provisions of the Geneva Convention. Hindsight allows us to claim something was lost in translation. Either way, King had very little choice. Each minute, more of his men were needlessly dying. Thus, at 12.30 p.m., King turned over his pistol. His saber had been left back in Manila and surrendered all forces on Bataan. But in time, it would become apparent the view of the Japanese of this end of hostilities was very different than the American version, like the difference between the terms hostage and POW. Postscript. General Edward P. King, born in Atlanta, Georgia, on July 4, 1884, was a grandson and nephew of Confederate soldiers of the American Civil War. Having an intense fascination with history, as many military men do, along with his pride in his Southern heritage, King was more than aware that April 9th was the same day that General Robert E. Lee surrendered his forces to General Grant at Appomattox. Thus Lee's phrase, There is nothing left for me to do but to go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths, was foremost in King's mind. Still, there was nothing for it. He rose, walked to his jeep, and drove towards the enemy. King would spend the next three and a half years as a POW. He was mistreated due to his rank and because he had surrendered. Expecting to be court-martialed after the war, instead he and Wainwright were treated as heroes. Though they had lost additional men after surrendering due to Japanese mistreatment, 
General King's defiance of MacArthur's orders saved many lives. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.